Welcome to False Bottom Girls, a podcast about the wonderful yet sometimes confusing world of beer and brewing. Hi, I'm Rachel Hudson, owner of Pilot Brewing and an Advanced Cicerone. Hi, I'm Jen Blair, sensory expert, home brewer, and Advanced Cicerone. Rachel, hello. Welcome, Jen. <laughs> Thank to you. To our False Bottom Girls podcast recording session. Thank you. I don't like it when we do it backwards. It's it's weird. You know, I love my routines, but Rachel, what I would like for you to do for me right now, we were just talking about this since it's not going to work on a visual medium. Um, can you sound like a can of carbonation <laughs> that was just shaken up and then opened? Yes. Do your I can. Version, please. Just shake it up and then opened. <laughs> Is that good? <laughs> I just spit all over my computer. <laughs> I like wiping up spit off my laptop. Get out of there. <laughs> I mean, how was that? I mean, was that good? It was kind of hard to do. You know, you're trying to capture the explosion part of it. Right. But I kind of missed the can part of it. But that's okay. You know, yeah. it's my first time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So before we started, Rachel said she was going to shake up the can she had in front of her and open it. Well, I so already go everywhere. Opened. Right. And then, but I would like also, to. We also theory. realized that it wouldn't, um, it wouldn't One time, work. I'll start this. Uh, so if you guys haven't picked up, which I'm sure you haven't because it's a ridiculous conversation, <laughs> we are going to talk about carbonation today, but <laughs> I will start with a funny little side story. When I worked at Capitol House back in the day, I, this is like when I was a manager. So I was a little young manager. I tend to fuck with people a lot. Probably wasn't, you know, the best learned my lesson, but this poor girl, her name is Lauren and I love her. She's great. She works in the kitchen and probably just out. It just told so much information about this person. Like you could go find her. I'm sure. <laughs> Anyways, my bad. Please don't but, go find her. Please don't. But, uh, <laughs> she, uh, she's like works in the kitchen. It was a busy night. She, you know, the rush died down. She came out for a break. I was behind the bar. She asked if she could have a Red Bull. So I go and grab her Red Bull and I go and shake the shit out of it in front of her. And I'm like, here you go. And she's so pissed, but <laughs> fun fact about Red Bull. And I don't really know why it doesn't explode. Like it, it tastes like carbonated beverage because it tastes that way i'm pretty sure but it doesn't explode for whatever reason um and she didn't know that and i knew that and so she was so pissed because she was so tired and just got her ass kicked and now she had to wait for this <laughs> I, don't, I don't think it's as carbonated as a soda Maybe right that's what it is but uh yeah and i was like no i'm sorry i'm just kidding she's like watch she did not hear me i was like oh i'm so sorry <laughs> felt bad on that one but yeah so um today we're talking about carbonation in beer specifically not in red bull right <laughs> <laughs> yes and this is um this will be coming out after rachel has done her presentation at homebrew con in san diego um so if you were in the audience for that i'm sorry i didn't warn you sooner that rachel was planning to walk out shaking cans of beer and open it out onto the oh. audience <laughs> <laughs> to, to demonstrate carbonation <laughs> much trouble do you think i would get in like i just want to like come at like have this banging badass music just start up 
And I just like walk out cans in both hands. I'm just shaking them. And then I just like give them to someone in the audience and I'm like, open it. And then I walk out and I give them another one. But then I, I keep grabbing cans and I keep shaking it and I just do it down the aisle as I walk in. There you and go. everyone's just covered in beer, but they keep doing it too, because I don't know why. Like, it looks fun. Uh, that is my dream. I will definitely not be allowed to uh, present again. Next well, season. that's okay. Yeah, I think it's worth it. <laughs> right. It is worth it, isn't it? <laughs> People would probably just be like, wait, no, I don't I don't want to open it. I want to drink it. And I'd be like, open it. Yeah. Open it or get out. <laughs> or if they don't open it, I'll just open it for them and run away. <laughs> Let them get splashed. Good. Well, Good. if this you is a are solid coming, plan. If you are coming to my presentation at Hobercon, you are in for a treat. Well, they were already in for the for a treat. True. A fitness treat. Right. So, but if you're, if you did go to Rachel's presentation, this is basically the same. So you can just tune out. No, I'm just kidding. Listen, cause it'll be, it, but I'm sure you did be because good. it's probably going to be like 37 white men and that's it. <laughs> <laughs> probably so the average age of 56. <laughs> Anyways, anyway. um, the name of our presentation or of, you know, the presentation and over homebrew call con which should probably just be the name of this episode is taking care of business yes which Special i love thanks to friend of the pod shana that's right thank you thank shana for the name <laughs> i will be in contact with you when i need beer names uh so taking care of fitness fizzness is all about carbonation what carbonation is in regards to beer why it's important and how you can control it uh, so if you if you follow along with us or with me personally, then you probably are thinking, wait a second, I thought Jen and Rachel were doing this presentation together as False Bottom Girls at HomebrewCon. Um, and due to several factors with the Brewers Association and the American Homebrewers Association, um, I declined to present this year. Uh, but Rachel, we're still going to be or we still were when this podcast comes out out in san diego together so hopefully we get to, we've gotten to meet some of you in person uh but that's why this is rachel kind of presenting this topic on her own yes also it is going to be fantastic practice for me when i have to present it next week that's right you all when you see her presentation you're going to be like whoa i was already expecting wow but now i'm at a yeah. whoa uh, so today you're getting the wow <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to need a clear definition on this, on the difference, like of whoa and wow. And which one means more? Obviously uh, the latter. Whoa means. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Because why would you say less? Of course. Right. Like when we're looking for things to present on, we like to present on technical topics, particularly being two women in the industry presenting on te technical topics um, rather than like um sensory like which obviously yeah i do like obviously i do a lot of sensory presentations uh, but it's really easy when you're applying to speak at conferences to get pigeonholed into like lady topics yeah and sensory is one of those usually like history um you know how to increase marginalized communities at your whatever uh so we always think about what are good technical topics that we would like to present on and similar to last year when we did milling and malting uh, or milling and mashing we were really surprised to learn that there there hadn't been any presentations or articles or anything recently on milling on precisely what it is 
as well as on mashing. And in the master exam last year, I completely fumbled on one of the uh, gas questions during the exam and was like, I have no idea what would happen if you used all nitrogen gas. And that kind of made me realize, uh, similar to what I did for foam as well, of like, hey, this is something that I just kind of take for granted and I can't find a lot of information out there about it and like, what is carbonation and why mm -hmm. is it important and what are the ways that you can do it? And I brought that up to Rachel and we were both like, yeah, like this is the kind of topic that you don't realize that you need until yeah. somebody says like, hey, explain carbonation in beer. Exactly. And it's, and it's you like, don't oh, know, uh. you don't know how much you don't know. Right. Really. It's one of those topics. It's not like, okay, well, I need hops is a very new thing to me, right? I need to learn about hops. You're like carbonation. I've been dealing with that since the day I was born. Like <laughs> <laughs> I mean, really? Yeah. <laughs> like, Rachel's mom used to shake the baby bottle. No, like you have CO2 in the atmosphere. <laughs> Soda as you grow up, the experiments you do as a kid with Mentos and the pop and the pop. Right. You know? True. True. You know, but hops, you know, that's whole new. You're like, I need to understand this where you're like, okay, carbonation makes my beer fizzy. That seems obvious because that's what happens with soda. Good to know. Do you know what also happens? That yes. I learned recently via a friend is that if you have a carbonated seltzer and you take a noon tablet, so those are those like little electrolyte tablets that you put like in your water and stuff like that to dissolve, that has the exact same effect as putting a Mentos in a can of soda, <laughs> which was not something we learned until after it happened. Did so that happen you in your stomach? That did not happen in my stomach. That oh. happened all over my garage in your glass. <laughs> when it foamed up and out of the can all over the floor. That's how we learn. Yes. So yeah, yeah sure. Those, that's why we chose carbonation as, as a topic, because like Rachel said, it is one of those things that if somebody's like, quick, talk about carbonation, I don't have a good yeah. answer. You're like, what is I've always assumed I understand it. Yeah, right. But you're like, if someone asks you, what is carbonation? Like, how do you, you know, what do you answer that? And I think most of us go to a simple answer. It's what makes our beer fizzy, right? It's when gas or CO2 gas specifically suspended in water, creating small bubbles. Boom, carbonation. But, you know, it's a chemical reaction of carbon dioxide uh, that gives carbonates and bicarbonates and carbonic acid is basically what is happening. And, you know, where does it come from? For beer, because we are talking about beer specifically. There is a lot of different ways. Uh, well, I would, I would actually probably argue that most ways, anything that has carbonating probably carbonation probably does come from one of these two ways as well, naturally and artificially. Right. There you go. Where, where else is it going to come from? <laughs> right. <laughs> that covers everything. Galactically. Does it, does it call, does it cover sorcery? Like that is. That's, <laughs> that's true. Alchemy. Those, yeah. So we've got that. We've got those two. <laughs> so naturally carbonation is a byproduct of yeast fermentation. When yeast is active, it uh, creates more yeast. It creates alcohol and it creates carbonation. And that is why you see your blow off bucket bubbling when your beer is fermenting and artificially it can come from gas tanks simply put uh, many different forms of tanks or, or sizes of tanks you know whether it comes to if you're in a big commercial 
brewery, you have a big tank outside all the way down to your five gallon tank that you probably know as a home brewer. So why does carbonation matter? Um, for lots, for a couple of reasons, there uh, provides sensor, sensory factors, which we'll talk about. It provides foam control, or that's not true, kind of true, but it provides foam. It provides a component that foam needs to be foam, most importantly, um, and packaging needs. These are all, carbonation doesn't just exist in what we're talking about today in the form of beer, but we're also talking about it in the form of serving beer, packaging beer, um, using it as a way to scavenge oxygen. You know, there's a lot more uses for it than just making your beer fizzy tasting. You know, carbonation is, it's CO2. What's the one thing that breweries don't want your beer to touch after we ferment? It's oxygen, right? So see, what can we replace it with? A lot of times we could replace it with CO2 or even nitrogen sometimes. Um, but Jen, since yes. you are my sensory guru, <laughs> that's so true i'm like hey jen i got a sensory question i'm not gonna i'm not gonna google it i'm gonna ask you <laughs> can you take us through why carbonation is is important for sensory and what kind of sensory impacts it has yeah so with carbonation you know one thing is it is a hallmark of beer right you don't want a flat beer that's not really what beer tastes like without that carbonation so it really is a key component to the overall profile and it's like one of the most functional roles it plays is those bubbles and particularly like you've got in your presentation rachel you know when you're pairing beer with food uh the carbonation is going to help scrub the fats and oils from your palate so it's really important for that and that's definitely one of the reasons why in a lot of ways beer can be a better pairing for food than wine because of that carbonation um i it's funny because a few i know i've talked before about the uh sensory panels that i've been doing with like the 10 different samples and one of the ones that i did was american lager kolsch and international pale lager and with the american lager one of the things that tripped me up at first was the really high carbonation I was confusing that for bitterness because it feels very similar mm. on your tongue. Mm. And so I was like, well, wait, this, this seems really bitter. So this can't be the American lager. And then I was like, wait, is this bitterness or is this just really, really high carbonation? And that carbonic acid is making it seem kind of prickly. Yeah, that is a very good, interesting point. And something I probably need to add to this presentation is the difference between carbonation and that carbonic acid, um, sometimes a beer can get so highly carbed that it develops what's called a carbonic acid. And that is different than being like carbonated. That is like, it can be an off flavor, like in a sense of like too much. You don't want it to develop this bite that I feel like is kind of almost comparable to what you were tasting in this like aggressive bitterness. Mm -hmm. I don't, I think so. I think the distinction there is I don't think it would necessarily be an off flavor, but I think it could exacerbate other flavors. Yeah. It's like too, bitterness. Yeah. Or, because or, the carbonic, like CO2 will break down on your palate as carbonic acid and the other thing. So it can be kind of sour tasting as well. Yes. Like it's almost got like an alkaline. Yes. Flavor. That's what I'm trying to say. And yeah, I think like a, a beer could be over out of style for not being carbonated correctly. Ex yes, exactly. So 
I've had like, I bring this up because I've judged with someone before and I thought the beer was, you know, highly carbonated in the sense that it was producing some carbonic acid in a negative way. Mm, okay. And then when I said this, he was like, well, it's supposed to be carbonated. And I was like, no. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, right. yes, but that's right. not what I... Yeah, I mean, I would say that like CO2 is CO2 is CO2. There's not different kinds of CO2. So it would be what the other, the level definitely would affect the intensity of what you're feeling in terms of that prickliness on your palate. But I would say it would also be the other flavors or the other, the overall profile that could exacerbate it. So like if it was really high in alcohol, um, which probably wouldn't be possible since alcohol has foam negative. Um, so you don't have a lot of um, alcohol, like high ABV beers don't have a ton of uh, carbonation. Yeah. <laughs> we're talking about today. Um, but if you had like bitterness, alcohol, that would make the CO2 seem harsher. That's what, exactly what I was trying to say. Cool. Very good. Thank we you. got it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the the reason for that for us being able to feel carbonation is because of this concept called nociception. And this is nociception is the our nervous system's way of processing noxious stimuli and it's found throughout our body. So that skin, intestines, nasal passages, mouth. Um, and I think Rachel, we've talked about before, like that's a really mean trick to play on people is to have them take like a big sniff of like a barrel or something and you get all that co2 in your nose and it hurts like it yeah. feels like you're being stabbed with very needles. rude yes and also potentially <laughs> lethal so do, yes. like, don't don't encourage people to someone, someone has done that to me CO2. before <laughs> hey rachel come smell the bourbon in this bourbon barrel boom like yes thanks dick yeah so on our palates the pain this pain is carried by our trigeminal pathway to our brain and that's going to happen via mechanical and thermal nociceptors. So the that trigeminal nerve in our mouths and noses is what tells us that there's noxious stimuli. And what I refer to this as is mild danger, because it's not likely, especially like if you're just drinking a beer, you're not going to have carbonation, experience carbonation as a noxious stimuli at such a high level that you are actually in danger, right? Yes, yes. So it's it's mild danger or it's little danger. And this, the other things that are nociceptors that, or that our nociceptors will pick up, capsaicin heat, menthol coolness, carbonation fizz, tannic astringency, and like mustard and horseradish pungency. They'll do that as well as temperature. So this is separate from our taste buds, right? So sweet, sour, salty, bitter, umami. It's going to be similar, but you like you can still get the nociception is still possible when you're stuffed up or something. And you all may recall from uh, a couple of years ago, me talking about how I learned about that by... Um, thinking, I wonder if hot sauce will still be hot if I plug my nose <laughs> and try it. <laughs> and it is. That's one of the Got dumbest 
things that I <laughs> have done in my life that like, as soon as I, it was just like a, huh, I wonder. And like, as soon as I did it, I was like, of course, dummy. Like, of course it does because that's a different scent. You're not perceiving the, ro- yeah. <laughs> You're right. not perceiving the heat through the aroma. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's exactly. like smell of, so, smell of vision on a TV. It's like, we're really yeah. on to something here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, yeah, so that's nociception. And that's how we experience carbonation is through our trigeminal nerve. We're talking about nociception and carbonation specifically. Like I said, it's designed for our bodies to be like, okay, something noxious is happening. How do we get rid of it? Which is why you have it like mouth, nose, intestines, rectum, all of that stuff, because you're, it's designed similar to bitterness. It's designed for your body to be like, oh no, how was the quickest good. way to get out of yeah. this, get this out of here. Uh, and like I said, most times this is kind of like mild danger, specifically or more specifically, like in the context of like capsaicin heat and eating like hot sauce and chilies, um, you you kind of like to have that the mild danger of making yourself uncomfortable temporarily because you know it's not going to last. Mm-hmm. And like that's with with hot sauce or something that's like um, like horseradish. Like I'm a huge mustard and horseradish person, and I know those sensations. And for me, it's so weird when I have horseradish or wasabi that goes straight to my nose, which the reason why horseradish and wasabi do that is because they're smaller um, molecules or smaller particles. So they rise up to your nose, whereas mustard is bigger and it stays like in your mouth. Uh, but when I have horseradish or too much wasabi, I feel it in the back of my head. Oh, I know what you mean. <laughs> Thank yeah. you. Thank you. Because I do know I will, what you mean. <laughs> I will sometimes be like eating something with horseradish or wasabi and just be like, ah, and just like start rubbing the back of my head. <laughs> uh, so I appreciate that you know that. I do. Because... I do that feeling. But yeah, so that's nociception and why we experience carbonation the way that we do. So that's those are that's going to be the like the biggest sensory impact on it. But also, if you think about like if beer were flat, it wouldn't it wouldn't be beer. Don't inhale a bunch of CO2 because you will die. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I've got stories. Got yeah. stories we'll get to. <laughs> now we're going to talk about some carbonation factors. And I don't really know what that means, actually, now that I say it out loud. But what I do know is that we're going to talk about carbine beer versus serving beer. In this section, I might have to rethink my carbonation factors title. I don't know where that (laughs) comes from, but whatever. Um, So we're going to talk about, there's a difference when we're talking about CO2, when it comes to beer, right now we're going to break it down to carbine beer versus serving beer. And when we're carbine beer, um, there are a couple of different methods uh, to do that, which we will get into in a little bit, but what we need to think about is basically how much carbonation we want, right? And that's going to depend on the style of beer, the temperature of beer, the alcohol content, um, maybe the equipment being used to actually carbonate it, whether you are making a nitrogen beer versus CO2, because you can. You, you can do that at home um, if you have the right equipment. Any job's easy with the right equipment. <laughs> <laughs> And then uh, serving beer, uh, when you need carbonation to serve beer, and this is where you need forced carbonation to serve, or I say forced, that's not the right word, carbonation in a tank, artificial carbonation. You need artificial carbonation to serve your beer if you are serving it from a draft system. That's not true if you are opening a bottle. So factors when carbonating beer, we talked about the style of beer and why is that important? 
Um, so different styles of beer have different carbonation levels, and this depends on maybe the ingredients of the beer, the alcohol content of the beer, and the serving condition of the beer. Um, your normal beer that you find in the market in a can or in a bottle is most likely going to be carbonated to the 2.5 volumes of CO2. So the average carbonation level of beer that you're going to find in the wild, in the market, in a bottle or can is going to be 2.5 volumes or even in a keg, 2.5 volumes of CO2. Now, what does that like mean exactly? And this is the best way I like to visualize things. Visualize a pint of beer that's carbonated to the volumes of 2.5 CO2. Now that 2.5 volumes of CO2 is equal to two and a half pints of CO2. So imagine two and a half pints of glass of, of CO2 worth in a glass that all that CO2 is going to be in the solution of your pint of beer. That's Same a really rule. good way to explain it. Thank you. Like someone, I don't know who did, but someone explained it to me one time like that. And I was like, it was me. No, I'm kidding. It was locked in, locked in forever. Probably was. It's probably just bored it knowing it. You were, yeah, for sure. But same with a keg. Same with any vessel that's holding that that beer. If it's a keg, you imagine two and a half kegs worth of CO2. That's how much CO2 is going to be in suspension of your beer. Um, so when we are talking about like serving a cask ale, you know, let's say you made a cask ale as a home brewer. I've seen people do it. Jen has a cask. Have you made it? No, no, I haven't. Because it's actually, it's like, there's a whole nother episode for this, but it's like, if you're going to have, make a cask beer, you better have a cask beer party. So everybody right, drinks exactly. It. Yes. Right. And I, I don't have people visit me. So yeah. And cask beer is a re-fermentation of the beer that happens in the cask. Um, similar to like bottling condition, almost in a way that we'll talk about later, just doesn't have the shelf life that bottling condition was because this is a, meant to be served fresh, but this has a natural amount of CO2. All beer has a natural amount of CO2. Um, and so we're going to have, this has like the lowest amount of CO2. Sorry. Do you know, and this is me, the audience member with a question. Yeah. Do you know what, if you only use the CO2, the natural CO2 from fermentation what is that level yeah from what i've read that level is about 0 0.75 volumes of co2 when i look at calculators online it seems that uh, most of them probably all of them are using 0 0.86 volumes of co2 oh okay i'm not sure who's right versus what i read and versus that, I'm not sure why. They both seem pretty reasonable to me. Right. Cask beer, you're going to be re-fermentating in the cask, right? So it's going to give you a little bit higher volumes of CO2, like 1.1, 1.2. So if you are familiar with cask beer, that is not the prime example of what a natural amount of CO2 tastes like in a beer. It tastes flat. <laughs> it does not taste know. flat. It's different. It's okay. Not, not, not the cask. Oh, a, okay. a flat beer. <laughs> okay, okay. I thought you were no, saying no, no. that Cascale. No, no. no Cascale does not taste flat. Cascale has a nice little carbonation sparkle. Flat be beer with its natural amount of CO2 tastes flat. Um, and then you get to styles of maybe like porters and stouts, you know, are going to have a little bit less than your traditional IPA or mass beer market 
beer that you've seen out in the wild, about 2.4, 2.3. Um, and then, you know, your Pilsners might have a tad bit higher than 2.5, maybe 2.7. And once you get into, and there's really no big scientific reason between these minuscule amounts of change, 2.4 and 2.7. It's all about perceiving the beer and the flavor and what is the best for that. Typically, when you have a lot of dark roasted malts, like in a porter or stout, why, why, okay, why do porters and stouts, in theory, according to what we find on the internet, have a tad bit lower carbonation level than your normal 2.5? I, so, yeah, so I would say it's probably historical with British beers typically being a little less carbonated just because of the casks. Yeah. Um, and having cask ale being such a big part of that and like kegs not really being used until yeah. later. Um, so I would say it's partially that. And then I think you're right with something like the roasted malt character. If you had a really high bitterness, that could make it seem acrid and astringent. Yeah. Astringent then it would be at a lower carbonation volume. I think so too. That's how I would reason my way through it. I think is probably like those, those two things, but excellent question to ask Rachel, because now we both have yeah. a learning opportunity. So with beers that have a higher body, like wheat beers, um, typically a little bit more carbonation will be wanted. And, you know, I throw out these numbers that are on this chart as examples, because they are good examples, but it's not like, end all be all like you know they call for three point volumes of co2 for saison and 3.5 volumes of co2 for wheat beer and there's a very high amount of co2 and when you also are a packaging brewery some you can't necessarily put all that co2 into a can um 2.5 is easy once you get to like three point or 3.5 this is, you know, we're talking about a canning line too. We're not talking like a hand bottling gun system, but this is um, if it, under perfect situations and probably under some bottling conditioning situations as well to get this high amount of of beer or on a homebrew level, this highest amount of CO2. I mean, because it's not as easy to do that the bigger the brewery gets. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also just a quick note, sometimes you might hear, grams per liter of CO2. That is just a different way of measuring CO2. It's practically double the amount of CO2 in volumes. It's basically like us talking about Fahrenheit and and Celsius. It's just a different way to read it. Um, Metric system. You know, us Americans. Yeah. American educated podcast host here, everybody. Yeah. (laughs) But higher the higher the alcohol level, typically the less amount of uh, carbonation you want and kind of think about it when you think about it, it makes a lot of sense. Like, do I really want my high ABV barley wine that is almost re- like a sherry maybe in some examples to be super carbonated? No, that sounds disgusting. Um, the higher the alcohol, the more alcohol you have, the less carbonation you want. Jen, as my sensory guru, what is the sensory reason of not wanting a high amount of carbonation with a high alcohol, like flavor beer or al- not flavor, but like something that tastes alcoholic is alcoholic, I should say. 
Right. Um, I don't have an exact answer to that, but just thinking through it, I would say that since, well, one, higher ABV is foam negative. So you just wouldn't, like, why would you, why would you waste CO2 if it's just not going to form anywhere? You know, think of like a soda, right? True. So you're, your high ABV is going to be foam negative. So you don't really need to add, like you're just being wasteful if you're adding a lot of CO2 to your high ABV beer. But I would also say if it's high ABV, then you're going to have uh, usually a fuller body. You're going to have um, kind of bigger flavors. The biggest one I would say is alcohol. I could see if something was very high in alcohol and it's also carbonated that's going to be very irritating for your entire palate. To yeah. Have that. It's kind of like you can have alcohol warmth or you can have carbonation, but you don't really want both Yeah, at the same time. It's just not going to be a good palate sensation for you. And that to me, I would think that that would overwhelm the actual flavor of the beer. It would just be like alcohol bubbles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And think I think about, about like if, if like vodka was carbonated. Yeah, exactly. Like, that's disgusting. That's a disgusting. Just like thought. like a shot of carbonated whiskey, like yeah. not not mixed with like ginger ale. <laughs> right. Oh god, it sounds so awful. <laughs> How do we do this as a sensory challenge for ourselves? How do we make some whiskey alcohol carbonated? Oh. <laughs> doesn't it but we should we should try maybe we should just dose our faces with co2 and then take a shot of whiskey like just like take the co2 like this is awful do not try this at home but at the equipment at the brewery make a little connection so we allow co2 to go into our mouth while we take the shot you want to do this challenge with me the next time we see each other oh good co2 is water soluble right so it stays yes it stays in the solution longer so the concentration of alcohol will limit the amount of co2 you can dissolve in it because it requires water needs to get added to my presentation and here you are ladies and gentlemen (laughs) just working this way through with us right exactly and see now we all know Fantastic. So there you have it. Why CO2 the is the, is important when you're determining what beer you want to make. You need to know the correct level of CO2 to get it to a proper um, serving carbonation level. Now, I will say it's not like if you have a stout that's 2.6, like it's okay. If you have a Pilsner that's 2.5, it's 100% okay. Right. That Uh, was the other thing I was going to say when you were talking earlier. It's kind of like when we talk about like ABV and IBU, like if somebody's like, "Mm, I think this is like three IBU too high. Like, no, you're not like you're going to be able to tell if the carbonation level isn't correct for the style. Yes. But you're not going to be like, "Hmm, this is 2.6, not 2.5. This is a flawed beer. And if you say that at a judging table, I will I will dismiss you. Right. Yes, we are not. Again, (laughs) we are not lab instruments. We're humans. And so it's not our job to estimate what the CO2 pressure is, like the yes, volumes of CO2 exactly. in beer is to evaluate is what is the carbonation level and is it correct for the style? Yes. And so when now that we determined 
the type of beer that we are making and what the CO2 level needs to be, there's other factors that come into that, like the temperature of the beer. Um, the temperature in beer is going to determine what the pressure it needs to be set at on the regulator while you are force carving your keg, because that's just, that this is assuming that we are first car- force carving our keg. I should say that this chart is assuming that we are force carving, carving our keg. This is not a bottling conditioning piece of information, I should say. Um, I say this chart that Jen and I are looking at because this is chart <laughs> I will be presenting <laughs> to people in front of their face. So I'm sorry. Yes. For, and the chart, uh, but, I re- yeah, yes. you can go to the draft quality manual. Um, on the Brewers Association website and look at these charts to see yes. when Rachel's talking about this chart, what we're talking about. I'm talking about a carbonation chart. It's a uh, chart of numbers that I use as a guide to figure out uh, where to set my CO2 pressure based on the temperature of my beer and what type of uh, how many volumes of CO2 I am looking for. Uh, for an example, the chart in front of me tells me if I at sea level. This is assuming that I am at sea level. We'll talk more about altitude here soon in our two-part episode of Carbonating Beer. <laughs> no, I think we should. <laughs> which, which, don't worry if you're if you're going to my presentation or if you went because this is the future in the past. This is uh, not going to be that long, so I will not have my guru here to bounce <laughs> off of and look things up. But, uh, I'm sorry for that sidetrack. So yes, if this chart is great. It will tell you what you need to know. If you're, if you have most coolers, I would say at the brewery, at your bar, wherever you're working, I'm sorry, at your house, because you're carbonating your beer. We are not serving it are going to be about 38 degrees. Let's assume your beer is 38 degrees. Your cooler is 38 degrees. And you're looking for a volume of 2.5 carb level in your beer. According to this chart, you're going to set your pressure on your regulator to 11. Um, it that, goes all the way to 11. It goes all the way to 11. It goes higher, but you will set it at 11. <laughs> right? Or maybe you, maybe your, maybe yours was a joke that I didn't yeah, It was. It's a spinal okay. tap joke. Ah, what? <laughs> spinal tap joke? Yes. Okay. What was I talking about, Jen? <laughs> For a second, I thought you froze. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you were talking, oh, you were explaining the chart. I was saying this chart is uh, great for also your serving pressure when you do, when we do talk about that. But if you were going to just hook up a keg to 11 at 38 degrees as a way to carbonate it, I say to 11 to 11 PSI, that is going to take a long time to carbonate. Um, you can do that. It just takes a while. We'll talk more about that, but I just wanted to put to explain why this is a factor when carbonating beer if you don't know what to set your regulator to this is how you would start if you are going to do a slow carbonating method anyways we're going to talk more about carbonating methods um also your equipment being used is going to have a lot to do with how you're going to carbonate your beer or um you know are you using a gas tank do, do are you going to bottle condition it? Are you using a quick carb? Do you have um, the equipment you need to to do things properly with a gas tank, or do you not? If you only have bottles, you can just use those. You just need your the correct priming sugar and yeast for in your beer needs to be the correct stage of its process. But um, 
So that is something that needs to be taken into consideration. A quick card, we'll talk more about that, but that is, you know, if you have that piece of equipment, you can obviously carbonate your beer a lot faster. And what you set your gas tank to is going to be different than what you would if you were going to carbonate slowly. Um, are you making a nitrogen beer? If you are, you still need CO2, but you need to know exactly how much CO2 you need. And that and what you need for nitronizing a beer is different than what you need for serving a nitro beer. Yes. So when we I describe the quick carb, I'll talk more about nitrogen beer and just a quick note on how to do that. Side note, we should do an episode on nitrogen, on nitrogenated beers, if we haven't already. I think we talked about it in our Irish stout episode from like the very beginning. Yeah. No, we we should should. just do a whole one on nitrogen. All right. I'm making a note. Because it's it's easy. It's uh, like I said, anything's easy with the right equipment, but it is doable at home. If you like nitrogen beer and you want nitro beer for your home brew, for your home kegerator, you can do it. I would not try to put it in bottles. (laughs) <laughs> well, I wouldn't try to nitronize it in bottles like you could with bottling condition. But anyways, we're going to talk about forced carbine versus bottling conditioning. Forced carbine methods, there's slow methods, there's shaking methods, there's different burst methods, inline methods. There's different ways you can force carb your beer. When we talk about forced carb, we're talking about artificial gas from a gas tank being forced into your beer. Right. At, You're not at- like... You me. Yeah. You do, do it, it now. Do it now. <laughs> You'll never leave here until you carb. <laughs> yeah, you can't you can yell at it, but I don't know if it's gonna do anything. Right. Um, and then conditioning, we're talking about bottling and keg conditioning. Um, so for forced carbonation uh at at a slow and steady pace. This is basically how I just described to you in that chart above. You setting up the keg of beer the cold keg of beer this is important cold beer absorbs carbonation quicker than warm beer so if you can keep a corny keg and a five get uh, pound gas tank in the bottom of your fridge or in a kegerator or wherever at your house and you're going to be in a good shape you can use your chart above to determine how cold your beer is it's important that your beer is the same temperature as the container that it's in like you're not just like sticking it in there and let's say your kegerator's 38 degrees and you're sticking in 44 degree beer. You can wait till your beer gets cold. Use a 38 degree measurement for your, when you're determining how much PSI to put on the beer. And then you just set it to that PSI level uh, before we determined that would be 11. If you want the volumes of 2.5 and um, then you would let it sit for a few days. Probably five to seven days, I would imagine. This is a slow and steady process. This is not my favorite process, but it's easier than other processes. So that's why people do it. But can you speed this up in the same way? You sure can. Rachel, how can I speed this up in the same way? In the same way, you can turn that gas pressure up. Let's talk about a shaking method. So let's talk about we have our keg like we we just described in the slide before sitting there with my my glass of tank Um, let's say i want to go faster let's set that gas pressure to about 30 hold the keg firm and shake it gently Um, and accelerating the rate of diffusion by bringing more co2 in contact with the beer so think about we're uh, creating more surface area with 
that isn't coming connection with the CO2. I have done this before. Oh yeah. I used to do this a lot at Hardywood. You know, honestly, when I worked there, a quick carb might not have been a thing (laughs) for the homebrew world. I'm serious. Like we had our, here's our big break tank, hook it up to the carb stone. And here's my corny keg, shake it. But yeah, so shake the keg for 20 minutes, stopping about every four minutes to listen to the keg. And the goal is that the bubble sound should stop only after only a few seconds at the end of the shaking period. And this means that the CO2 is dissolving. Um, If that happens lower, or once that happens, lower the pressure to 20 PSI and then wait an hour or two and let it settle and then test your beer. Um, This does increase your chances of overcarbonating. So you do want to be careful. The uh, head brewer at Hardywood, and I have no idea if this is right. We're all just learning, but he would be like, Rachel, whatever you shake it, like just count the whole time and then test the beer. And that way we know how many counts we'll get it of how many volumes, like in our own little like calculator mind. <laughs> this wasn't like a real measurement, but it worked. It took a while. It, it would increase your time by, I think you could, we could probably get it done within like a whole day. Versus five, seven days. The more the, the more you shake, the colder you keep it. I guess the more you would you would speed that up, but it goes a lot faster. So the next method we have is burst carbine, another force method. Um, this is where you hit the keg with high CO2 pressure and it carves more quickly without having to shake it. So crank your regulator up to 30 PSI for 24 hours, then reduce down to normal serving pressure, 12 to 15 PSI. Um, and that should leave the beer about 75% carbonated. And then it could take another three to four days to reach this idea level. So this is faster than the slow method, and it can happen outside of a kegerator. Um, it, oh, but some cons is that it can increase the risk of overcarbonation. And with the extra pressure, it could maybe create some CO2 leaks because it is a lot of pressure. Um, and it's slower than the shaking method. Um, and then it. for our, our last force method, the quick carb, the inline. Well, inline and quick carbing are get, are a little bit different in the sense of inline is probably is carbonation is typically in a professional brewery. Inline carbine is when you are carbing the beer as it transfers from the primary vessel to, or fermentation vessel to the bright tank. Um, it can also be the quick carb, which is what we're going to talk about. And the quick carb is my favorite option, the best option for small batch carbonating. In my opinion, Um, you are basically hooking up a pump to, I I wanted to say the one you see here in this picture, but our listeners don't see it. It (laughs) is basically imagine a, a little pump that has a hose coming into the top of it. And that is pulling beer from the keg. Um, into out of the pump into a little T that holds a carb stone out of that T through into another hose that will go back into your keg. So imagine the beer coming out of the keg into the pump, into the T out of the T back into the keg in a recirculation method, it's pumping it. And another hose is hooked up to the carb stone that is in the T, which is hooked up to your gas tank. This is where you inject the um, CO2 from the gas tank, goes through this carb stone and injects into your beer as the beer is pulling out of the keg back into the keg. So this is um, 
super fast method. You can carbonate a five gallon keg in about 50 minutes. We do it at the brewery. It is also a really good option if you want to nitronize beer. Um, so if you want to nitronize beer, just a quick note on it, I would, and you are home brewing and you have the proper way of serving beer, nitronized beer. I guess you always could bottle it. You, yeah, you could. You wouldn't have a nitronized like pouring effect, I don't think. But you could bottle it. I don't see why you couldn't, at least. I'm just waiting for you to tell me I can't. No, I'm thinking about it. Um... <laughs> I think you can. I just don't think. I mean, we don't make. Um, I know growlers. you can. I don't know why you would. Oh, well, if you don't have a way to serve it. Like if you wanted to make a nice, nice beer in your corny keg, but you don't have a draft system at home. Mm. Because if you want to serve it in a draft system, you really. Like, obviously, if you want to serve it on a draft system, you have to have a draft system. But if you wanted to bottle it and be able to drink it, as long as you're purging your bottles with CO2, I think it would be fine. Does it have enough pressure in the bottle? That will be part of our upcoming nitrogen episode. We're yes, going to we'll figure, figure it out. out the dynamics of that. Um, I know when I worked at Left Hand, this is not the secret, but so I can say it, <laughs> but they had a nitrogen doser as part of the bottom of the line. So that would be part of it. So like there is something else that they did to make it. And that was to make it cascade. So I'm just trying to think of like quality reasons why. But anyways, this will be part of our upcoming nitrogen. You heard it here first. Yep, we'll episode. report back. Uh, so if you did want to make a nitrogen beer, this is a great option. Nitrogen beer is uh, has still has a little bit of carbonation in it. It needs it. It has about 1.1 volumes of carbonation. It's like a cask beer. Basically, this is super great because you can take a uh, your quick carb. You can hook it up to your beer like normal. And then we're actually going to start out with a little bit of CO2, just like you would if you were going to carb the beer. And you would do that for about 10 minutes on a small level of PSI, not five, but like about 15 PSI. The idea is that you need to give it just a little bit of time and um, a little bit of carbonation. And then you would stop your process, take off the gas tank and just switch it over to 100% nitronized tank and nitronize if you're going to have a five gallon tank for about three hours. It takes a while. Nitrogen does not like to be soluble in your beer. It is hard for it to, to be one with the beer, unlike CO2. It takes a while because nitrogen doesn't, it doesn't solubilize, solubilize. Solubilize, that's my big word for the day. Well, in beer, like a CO2 does, but you can do it. And if you have a nitrogen um, setup at your homebrew system, or if you want to, it's pretty easy. It's just a different faucet, but you would uh, serve that beer with a gas blend. And we will talk a little bit more about that in the serving part. But uh, basically, you nitrogen beer has a little bit of CO2. So if you don't give it a little bit of CO2 to keep in suspension, it will lose the CO2 and then you'll just have a creamy mess. Switching over to our natural way of conditioning beer, bottling conditioning, also called bottle re-fermentation because that's exactly what's happening in the bottle. It's a re-fermentation to create carbon dioxide, to create CO2. 
Um, for home brewers, it can be pretty simple. We're going to just add a measured amount of sugar to freshly fermented beer and bottle it immediately. Why is that simple? Because you probably don't have a ton of beer. We're talking about five, 10 gallons. Um, you probably don't have I'm sure you have a, a packed full schedule with your personal life, but you probably don't have one other million beer things that you have to attend to getting in the way. <laughs> uh, commercial breweries, not as ideal to use the yeast that is in the beer. Basically, the yeast that's been used for primary fermentation is not the best candidate to perform a re-fermentation. It's gone through a lot of different stresses um, already. And for bigger breweries that have really big tanks and a lot of hydrostatic ferment, uh, pressure on their fermentation, yeast is already in a depleted state by the time you would want to use it for bottling conditioning. And it's in a low pH environment. So it's stressed out by its own ethanol and it's going to be stressed out by the more, by the more pressure that's going to be put on it when it's building in the bottle. So most pr commercial breweries will introduce new yeast for bottling conditioning. Um, and that can be a big difference. Sometimes it will be the same strain and sometimes it won't be. And that's just brewery dependent. They will normally filter their beer to make sure any of the first yeast is out as well. So as to not um, risk over carbonating or I guess really under carbonating. The amount of priming sugar that is needed for bottling conditioning on a homebrew level, uh, you know, I guess really in, in any level, but mainly is going to be dependent on three factors, and that's going to be the de desired level of carbonation, uh, the CO2 content that's at already in the beer at bottling, which we have kind of mentioned that, you know, online calculators are going to assume that 0 0.86 volumes of CO2 are already in your beer, which is great. They're taking that into account for you. Um, if you, for, for some reason, know a number that's different, you should switch that up. I don't know how you would know unless you have really expensive equipment. Um, and then the amount of fermentable sugar still remaining in the base beer. So these, all this depend, all these factors are going to depend how much yeast concentration. If you are adding a amount of yeast to the beer, how much you're going to put in there, or if you're using the yeast that's already in there, more importantly, how much priming sugar you're going to put in there. So there's a lot of online calculators. And like we said before, they're going to assume that you have a natural amount of CO2 in your beer. But these are going to be your best resources for figuring out how much priming sugar you want. Um, and Brewer's Friend has a good one. There's a couple that you can uh, actually Google. But what I really like about Brewer's Friend is that it will give you priming sugar options. Uh, so like if it, you want to use corn sugar versus Belgian candy sugar versus brown sugar, that's it will tell you how much of each you should use depending on what you put in, which is pretty great. And, you know, like, what is priming sugar anyways, right? Priming sugar is, it fuels the rumen fermentation um, that's happening in the bottle to create your carbonation. It must be calculated. You don't want to just be guessing. Uh, if you add too much, you can cause problems of overcarbonation, gushing of your bottles, or even exploding bottles, which is dangerous. But you can, comes in the form of sucrose, glucose, fructose, uh, lots of different types to be used. So if you are going to be using one versus something that you're used to, I would check out the difference in those because you might not need the same amount of different types of priming sugar. So that's something to keep in consideration. And once you have the beer in 
the bottle with the priming sugar and it's all blended in. The bottle, is, this is done at a warm temperature. The beer is done at a warm temperature in the around 60 to 70 degrees. And the bottles are placed into warm storage about 10 degrees higher than that for two to three weeks. Um, if you do bottle condition cold and then place them into a warm storage condition, you could risk uh, stuck fermentation and not allowing the yeast to come out of its dormant stage to re-ferment re the beer, get your desired level of carbonation. Uh, the German purity law is kind of interesting when it comes to bottling conditioning. Instead of priming sugar, they use what's called Spice. I've been learning German, so I'm not positive. Look at you. I yes, think that I might be right. Yeah, it's Spice or Spice. Uh, Rachel, before you go on, yeah, pop yeah. quiz, hot shot. Why, Shit. if I wanted to bottle condition... And still obey Reinheitsgebot, why would I need to use spice instead of priming sugar? Well, priming sugar is not one of the four main ingredients of beer. I thought that was exactly. like, I thought it was just like too easy. Like I was like, she's not asking me this easy question. I was like, what's the trick? Of course here? I'm asking you the easy question. No tricks. Well, Only they tricks. do that on my master exam. Well, they ask me the easy questions. This is not done. So adding the spices, like adding the food for the yeast, it's it's basically, it provides the beer with, uh, you're going to be using a small amount of wort, which provides the beer with fermentable sugar and some unfermentable sugars and the, and the yeast necessary for re-fermentation. So you're basically adding just a little bit of unfermented beer as the sugar source instead of primary sugar. Um, this good examples of this is bottled Hefeweizen, although a lot of bottled Hefeweizens you've seen on the market made from German breweries probably did not undergo this. It's more of a small artisan producer type of style for bottling. And most bottled Hefeweizens on the market are going to be bottled with yeast, but pasteurized beer that has not undergone bottle conditioning. Okay, conditioning. I know this isn't a huge practice. I've probably seen this done more with professional breweries than I ever had with home brewers. Jen, what, how do you feel about that statement? Yes, I agree. Yeah. And so, you know, this is, can be a little bit dangerous of a process to do at home. I guess in my mind as a professional brewer, I'm thinking about somebody undoing the spear of a keg. Oh my God. Don't ever I, do that. I guess anybody. you're not doing that. You're using your corning keg. So that's good. But this is the same thing. You're just doing it in a, a keg. Um, benefits of doing this, same as the bottle, uh, you are scavenging, your, the CO2 is scavenging up any extra oxygen that might be introduced during the packaging process, which you might not, you won't get that benefit when you're packaging forced carb beer. Um, it can produce a hazier beer. Uh, just through research, I saw a couple trials of keg condition versus forced carbed, and the product came out as hazier each time on the keg condition, which... You know me, I don't want that. Um, and it produces a different type of carbonation, which can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on your taste buds. But some also research I read was uh, a not so desirable carbonation, not necessarily level, but different flavor they were getting. And I couldn't tell you exactly why scientifically, but yeah, that's that I'm curious um, about that because I don't know how you would how it creates a different type of carbonation. Maybe, because maybe like we said earlier, like CO2, CO2 is CO2. You're not creating like a, a different 
maybe unpleasant carbonate bite. That's what all I got to imagine. Okay. And that's um, an interesting question also that uh, I know that you don't have in here, Rachel, but, or you may have it later on, uh, is whether it's kind of like the decoction argument, people who are like fans of decoction are like, you can absolutely tell a difference. And people with bottle conditioning say the same thing. It's like a softer carbonation. Um, So we'll have to look into that a little bit more and see why that is. Because again, you're still creating CO2. So it's going to be, I would have to imagine, there's, it just does something to, like you were saying, something to the overall impression. Yes. And I think it goes back to that carbonic acid conversation we were having about how it makes something else more pronounced mm-hmm. possibly in a negative way because it is that it, you know if we're talking about a carbonic bite that can be very unpleasant right um, stay tuned everybody we're hot on the heels of this mystery yeah man we got so much work to do <laughs> <laughs> don't you love when we assign ourselves homework and then when we do that homework we end up coming out with more homework <laughs> Thank you for that. And as as we were going through this, we we're like, oh yeah, this is going to be one of those two part episodes, which is what usually happens when we end up doing a more technical topic. Is we'll just get started talking, and then we're like, oh no, it's been over an hour, and not that you all can't handle so an much. hour long podcast episode. But yeah, we've still got more to cover, and we don't want it to be a two hour long podcast episode. Yeah. Uh, so thank you, Rachel, for presenting us with your first half of your presentation on carbonation. I know I learned a lot. I think you learned some mm-hmm. and hopefully oh, yeah. people listening learned. Yeah. And we will be back with part two of this in two weeks. So thank you everyone for listening. As always, you can find us on social media at False Bottom Girls on Instagram and Facebook. You can email us falsebottomgirls at gmail.com or you can visit our website at falsebottomgirls.com. This has been False Bottom Girls and we make the Bruin world go round.